So it is good, I said this already, to be in the house of the Lord today, but not just here, not just us, not just the people that are here. I mean together in the hearts of all those who worship alongside of us. There's people watching online at home. There's people gathered in different churches. And what God is, uh, has done is he has brought together his kingdom, and maybe it's not all here at Stay Road. We get that. And so I hope, I pray, I'm thankful that we are able to worship together today with you, and I mean with the collective hearts of the believers across this world. It's my continued prayer, though, that at some point we'll be able to be together again, and so I hope that time will come quickly. The passage that I'm going to look at this morning, that I'd like us to look at this morning, is found in John chapter 4, and I'd encourage you to be uh, flipping through to that. It's uh, one thing to hear words proclaimed. It's another thing to open God's word and to look at them. I challenge you to hold me accountable to God's word as I speak this morning as well. Well, maybe not right as I'm speaking, but maybe you can follow up afterwards if you think I said something crazy. Don't be, yeah, anyway. Verses 27 through 42 is where we're going to be looking today. Now, I hope that you've already had a chance to read some of these words this week. I mentioned about the Wednesday email, and we try to let you guys know uh, about a little bit about what we might be uh, talking about or studying throughout the week. And, um, and so if you haven't gotten that email, I really encourage you to ask me for it so that we can be together studying. Uh, you can be lifting up your pastors in prayer as they open God's word and prepare to share the Spirit's truth with you throughout the week. And so Pastor Tate, a few weeks ago, he gave us an introduction to this portion of Scripture uh, uh, with the study of the woman, the story of the woman at the well. And this is a fairly well-known passage where Jesus talks not only to a woman, but what is considered to be a risque woman. And not just only a risque woman, but a risque Samaritan woman. And he reveals to her the very thing that John the Baptist alluded to in chapter 3 as he spoke to some of the disciples and Jews. And he said this, you yourselves bear me witness that I said that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And so Jesus reveals to her, this risque Samaritan woman, I, I who speak to you am he. He's making his proclamation that he is the Messiah, and this is early on in the timeline of Jesus' earthly ministry, so just to give you a little bit of context there. And what the Lord brought to our attention, I believe, through Pastor Tate previously and about this story of worship is that worship must be sincere. Worship must be in spirit and in truth. See, we cannot love God if we love sin while just attempting to pay God off. I think that's what he was trying to get across to us. And, and that was the plight of the Jews as well. They would do bad things and they would just make more sacrifices. They would just try to pay God off. But here God reveals to this woman that the time has come to fix this abused, manipulated system of piety and lip service. And so challenged to worship in spirit and in truth and confronted with this messianic claim, we find ourselves here at chapter seven, 27. And so if you join me here, we're going to read the Lord's word together. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And we're going to stop there, and there's plenty to unpack here today. So would you pray with us this morning? Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us that which is hidden that the Spirit would be at work in the proclamation and through the proclamation of your word today. May we worship in spirit and in truth as we gather not to pay you off, but instead to celebrate the true freedom that we can find through the Son, Jesus Christ, that we may no longer be slaves to our own sin. Lord, help us to find strength in you by doing that which you have set before us today. We pray this in your name, amen. So John's account here, is a, it seems a little bit disjointed. And so we have the Samaritan woman's response to Jesus. We see her actions. We see her worship. And then we have some of this kind of weird in-between comments about the disciples eating lunch and harvesting crops that feels like it might be a little bit misplaced. And then that's followed by the town of Sychar's response to the woman's testimony. And then ultimately their response to Jesus as well. And what I'd like to address uh, here first is the full story of the town of Sychar, and then we'll return to unpack the purpose of this, uh, this stuff we find in the middle of the Oreo here. But growing up, I had a few different cars. I had, my first car was nothing to be too proud about. It was a 1990 navy blue Ford Tempo. You guys remember Ford Tempos? not to be undone, outdone by the Mercury Topaz. But I drove that car for around three years. I took it everywhere. I drove it a lot. I even brought it down to Orno. That was uh, where I was going to college at the time. And so I brought it down there and graced the campus with its presence. But I used that car a lot, and eventually that car broke. Cars break. That's just what happens, right? But that car broke, and I needed another car. And, well, my brother had gotten a newer car, and so my mom and dad said, here, you can use his old 1990 Ford Mustang. See, I didn't 
increase in years at all. I didn't change. I'm still driving a Ford, and this Mustang isn't like a nice Mustang. It's those boxy ones. I don't know if you remember. Anyway. So I drove that Mustang for a while, and that broke pretty quick, too. And then on to my mom's Chevy Lumina. I had to get to work one day, and the Mustang wasn't working, and she said, just take my Lumina. And so on the way to work, the Lumina broke. <laughs> another car, right? Just another car broke. And I just, I just needed cars, right? I needed to get from place to place. I drove a lot of cars throughout my teen years. And to be honest, my parents bought them. They paid the insurance on them. I know you probably thought if you were going to hear about insurance, it was going to be last week during Ron's uh, sermon. But They paid the insurance on them. They paid for repairs, and sometimes they even paid for my gas. And personally, I committed very little to these cars, very little to their upkeep, very little to their purchase. And to be honest, I think I'd have to define my teenage years as being somewhat of a consumer, and I think consumerism, consuming, is, uh, is a pretty popular term right now, but it, it applies to a lot of what we do. We consume a lot of stuff. We consume computers and phones and game consoles and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and hours of endless cat videos on YouTube. We are a society of consumers. But this woman, she knew of God. We don't really know how much or how little, but she had some understanding of at least what worship was in the context of tradition. And so regardless of her sin stature, we also know that the Samaritans themselves more generally uh, also had a worship problem. Samaritans themselves were considered half-breeds of Jews who enjoyed and practiced some aspects of Judaism Yet they worship God alongside of their other little g-gods. They merely consume God as an element of their worship rather than the true object of their worship. But here we finally see a shift in this woman's life as she talks with Jesus. An excitement that's building within a woman at a well talking to a man that she had just met about a God she barely knows. And in response to what she has heard, she forgets her jar. That's the first thing that we read there. After the disciples come back, they kind of think about what, why is he talking to a woman? I'm not really sure what's going on here. It says that she leaves her jar and she heads back to town. And this might have been an accident. This might have been uh, fully intended to leave. I don't, I'm not sure. But regardless, the jar and the water within it are no longer important to her. And instead, she runs to town and she begins to proclaim to the people that she was most likely trying to avoid by being at the well at noon, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And see, before her encounter, she knew of Christ. She said that she had heard of the Messiah, but at this point, she lacked any true worship. As Pastor Josh explained to us last week, what Christ has done, though, in meeting this woman at this well was to turn her from, I believe, a consumer of religion into an owner of a, rela a meaningful relationship with the Christ. And so my question to you this morning, what is it that constitutes ownership in something? 
I mentioned I was a consumer in high school. I consumed my parents' things. I drove the car they provided me. I ate their food, and I had little ownership in anything. I love to call it my car, my car. I like to claim ownership of it, but I really had no true commitment to it. I never had to pay the insurance. Much like it is with faith at times. I grew up in a Christian home. I had lots of godly examples in my life, but I was merely for a long time a consumer. For a long time in my Christian walk because I had never had a conversation with Christ at the well like this Samaritan woman did. But I, I believed. At least I thought I believed. I just didn't have everything figured out. Just like everything else, I use those relationships too to convey a belief in Christ, at least initially. But when I bought my first car, when I, when I put actual money down, when I began to pay the insurance, I started to drive it a little slower. I started to clean it daily and wash it and baby it and make sure the oil got changed because it cost me something. It cost me something. And I wanted to care for that thing which cost me. The difference here is that we're not talking about cars. We're talking about people. I can't take out an insurance policy for my children and hope that it will change them eternally. What must be done is that we must care and take, make much of the witness that we have been given. That is what ownership spiritually must mean. We must take care of the witness that we have been given. Christ has called us not only to hear the word of God, but also to employ it, to make much of it. And part of the Samaritan woman's shift from consumer to owner was that she cared about the message that she had, and therefore she began to share it, to proliferate it. Just like the Jesus had also entrusted her with that message, even though she was a traditionally religious Samaritan woman. Her proclamation was the planting of seeds that drew others to Christ. And we actually see that physical representation of a spiritual act here in these verses. They went out of the town and they were coming to him. And then at the end, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard it ourselves. She drew people to Christ. She cared about her witness. And she began to draw people to him. And we see that here physically. She draws them to him. And after only two days, we begin to see belief grow once again in more people. And this, this is the example that Jesus makes much of to his disciples in the middle. And so we'll try to understand what was he meaning? What was he meaning when he started talking about food and harvesting to his disciples in the context of this beautiful story? And so if we shift back and we'll sift through verses 31 through 38 together, hopefully we can see Jesus' point in this seemingly along the way extension of the gospel to people who are far from God. Right, this was early on in his earthly ministry where he focused on the Jews. Yet here he extends his ministry to the Samaritans. 
Picking up back in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has has anyone brought him something to eat? And I want to stop here because there's four times so far in the Gospel of John that the Lord has spoken in a way that has confused his audience. And I understand where, uh, to understand where we are in the timeline of Scripture, like I said, this is where Jesus is beginning to reveal himself, not only to the Jews, but to others, and eventually to the rest of the world. And so I want to look back at John 2.19 real quick. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but in John 2.19, speaking to the Pharisees, he says this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And what was their response? It took 46 years. 46 years to build this. How are you going to do this in three? And at this point, no one knows his purpose. No one knows his power. They were blind to it, just as we all are before we've gotten to know who Jesus is. Nicodemus, he's a Jew who seems to believe Jesus is different. He refers to him, Jesus, he, Nicodemus refers to Jesus as a teacher who has come from God. Yet he too is confused in John chapter 3. He says, uh, when Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus' response is, well, how can I go back into my mother's womb? Another human answer to a spiritual illusion. And also the woman at the well herself, at the beginning of this chapter that we are studying today, Jesus says, referring to himself, he would have given you living water. And I have to think, she's probably thinking, I, didn't you just ask me for a drink? How, how are you going to get water from this well? It's too deep. You don't have a bucket. Another human response to these heavenly things that Jesus told Nicodemus people would struggle with. The disciples are no different Here, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Who gave him food? Didn't you just send us into town to go get food? Who gave him food? Human responses to that which is spiritual. And as a brief aside here, we need the Spirit of God each day. We need him as we open his word. That's One of the reasons I think that we pray pastorally ahead of the sermon to ask for God to be in our midst, not just so that he can bless us with stuff, but that he can bless us with understanding. We need the Spirit each day. And at this point, I don't think anyone truly understood the level of impact Jesus would have in the grand scale of things. And in an appreciation for the Spirit, Jesus says, uh, my apologies, in Ephesians 1, Paul reflects on the grand scale and in his appreciation for the Spirit, he says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having your eyes and your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you which he explains is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul goes on to explain that. That's what Jesus alludes to early on in in John, and that's what now he tells the woman at the well, I am the Messiah. 
The mode of Jesus' messianic work was still yet unknown to the people, and this hope was still hidden. And yet Jesus redirects these men, as he did with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And in doing so, he begins to reveal that purpose that nobody truly knows. The thing that drives him, the thing that fuels him as if it were food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, that doesn't tell us 100% of what he's trying to get at. But I think Jesus is trying to lay for us a groundwork for those who would read these words and already know who he is. So we get to read the rest of the Bible. We get to understand now in the full context of Jesus' life what he means by these words. We know that he is the Son of God. And ultimately, as these new Sychar Christians would refer to him, as the savior of the world. Capable of doing things outside of the bounds of human experience. And I have to imagine here that it wasn't that Jesus wasn't hungry. I think he was hungry. In his humanity, I think he really probably was. And we know that indeed he was hungry at different times, such as in Matthew 4, 4, after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. I can't go four hours. I don't know how he went 40 days. It says that he was indeed hungry, at which point he was tempted by the devil, right? Okay, of course. If there's any time to be more hungry than this time right now, it was after fasting for 40 days, and now being tempted by the devil who says, make these stones into bread. See, Satan knows his power. Satan knows what Jesus is capable of, turn these stones into bread. But what he does here is he ignores Jesus' purpose. Because Jesus' purpose isn't self-fulfillment. Jesus' purpose is God's glorification. But his tactic here is to distract Jesus from accomplishing God's work for him. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Jesus' response to to Satan. And then here, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, his power, and his purpose. And this tactic of Satan needs to be called out within the church today. The Bible refers to this distraction as being led astray. And Jesus himself warns the Pharisees later in chapter 8 what Satan is fully capable of. He says this, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. And those lies, they'll penetrate our lives as we consume more and more of the world and less and less of the words that come from the mouth of God. Are we, are you listening for him today? But Jesus was focused on his work, which was what? We know because we have the blessing, like I said, of being able to read ahead. We don't have to wait for the next episode. We don't have to wait for that all anxiousness. God is in the business of what? He's in the business of reconciliation. And that's what we see here in the story of the woman at the well. Jesus doesn't withhold himself from her because she's a woman or because uh, she's a sinner or because she's a Samaritan. Instead, He gives his witness to her. 
He shares with her that which he cares about, that purpose that he is trying to give to each person because it's his purpose, the ministry of reconciliation. And nor should we withhold it from anyone. We are witnesses as witnesses of his extraordinary, widespread, and seemingly impossible work. Jesus wastes no time in continuing to demonstrate his spiritual power and direction in the midst of this human world, and he goes on to say this to the disciples. And again, it's another confusing thing, right? They were just confused at the fact that he said, I have food that you don't know about. He says this, do you not say that there are four months that comes, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. And I can imagine Jesus saying this as he looks up and he sees cresting over the hill a throng of people coming from Sychar to him. Look and see that the fields are white for the harvest. I think he was fully aware of what they were coming for, what they wanted, and what the woman at the well had done. At the end of May, my kids received some small kits, and these little kits had pumpkin seeds in them and a cup and some, some soil. And they planted those pumpkin seeds, and they watered them, and they put them on the windowsill. And the pumpkins didn't do anything for a while. And you kind of think that maybe you got some bum seeds. And then over time, those pumpkin seeds, they, you saw something sprout up, and there's excitement. There's, there's something's happening. And then they get a little bit taller and a little bit taller, and then you're like, okay, well, when is this going to be over? And then you have to go outside and you plant them. And so we, went out, we brought them outside and we planted them in the ground. And they've been growing there for what? The past few months, right, guys? And finally, after months of growing, we have not pumpkins. I wish we had pumpkins. But we have tiny little buds, just the possibility of fruit. After months of watching and waiting for these painstakingly slow pumpkins to grow. You know, I think at first, and maybe I'm wrong, I think my kids were really excited at first when they planted those seeds and they're like, man, when are these things going to grow? But over time, we begin to yawn. We begin to struggle with every, all this in-between stuff. We don't like the idea of sowing and then months and months later finally harvesting. But imagine, imagine if planting and harvesting happened on the same day. On the same day, I'd be out planting stuff all the time. I, I, wanna, I need some cucumbers. Boom, cucumbers, right? I mean, abundance would be amazing. Everybody would plant stuff. Because planting and harvesting would happen on the same day. That to have the awe and excitement of planting and then also the rest and celebration of the harvest without the burden of tending in between, I think would be kind of glorious. I think it would be amazing. And so he says this. He says, look towards Sychar. Look what I can do. Look what I am capable of. Verse 36, he says, already the one who reaps 
is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Remember, he's making spiritual things of human things. She's gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And to be honest with you, I think it might be here that the disciples begin to understand a little bit about who Jesus is. Even in the midst of a passage that probably by most of, well, at least the last comment he made, I guess most of the other ones are, could all, they're all confusing. All these confusing passages, and the disciples don't respond. They don't say, what do you mean? What do you mean the planter is going to overtake the reaper? How's that going to happen? How is that possible? No, they don't ask these questions. They sit and they listen to what God has told them. As students of Scripture, I think they would have known the prophecy of Amos 9. And that's what I believe is being alluded to here that serves a twofold purpose in this passage. Amos 9 says this The days are coming declares the Lord, when the sower and the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by one treading the grapes. And new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. God's promise of abundance here is here as he establishes his eternal kingdom. He's reminding us that there is eternity at stake. This is not just a human problem. The people of Sychar coming to him, the woman at the well, Nicodemus, the Jews, these are all not just human problems that need fixing, they're spiritual problems that need a savior. Secondly, if Amos, uh, if you read a verse or two ahead in Amos, Amos also follows the passage here that James in Acts 15 refers to as a prophecy for salvation for all that bear the name of Jesus, for all nations that bear his name. It's here that he begins to invite his disciples into the reaping work of a people that are not the Jews. It's the fulfillment of a prophecy in Amos that would extend the salvation through God to more than just the nation of Israel. That there would be an abundance in the harvest And it's that work that he invites the disciples into. That in this reaping work, they might also experience joy. They might also experience celebration as they harvest shoulder to shoulder with a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman who did the planting. See, Jesus planted and harvested all while the disciples were out getting food. And not only that, there was a harvest ready again. All while they were gone, Jesus ushers in a new age. This age is not calculable. It's not neat. But instead, his grace appears messy, paradoxical, and ultimately supernatural. I believe it is his desire for you here at State Road Church as part of his graciously all-encompassing kingdom to no longer answer him with, spiritual res- or with human responses, but instead to see what is spiritual and what 
may be accomplished through him. So much more, so much more than we expect. May God remove the scales from your eyes that you might see his glorious splendor and his all-surpassing power and that we might be in wonder at what he might choose to accomplish through us and by us. And so as you take ownership of your faith, what is your response to the claim that this man who knows everything about you is the Messiah? What is your response? Is it how do I re-enter my mother's womb? Is it where are you going to get a bucket? Is it did someone make you lunch? Scripture says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Why? To accomplish God's work. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Forty-six years it took to build it. Is that our response? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. Remember, this, this is after the fact. His disciples remembered what he had said, that he had said this, and they believed. The people of Sychar believed because of the woman at first. They believed truly because of the word of God. And I think the disciples even probably struggled. They might have said, hey, look, he believes a little bit. And he, let's, do, let's keep doing this thing that we're doing together. His disciples remembered what he had said. And it caused belief. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let that be the litmus test for our faith. Let that be what drives us to commitment. Let that be what drives us to a care, to that testimony that God has given each one of us to share. Let us pray. Lord God, your word is truth. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are the spirit and life. Lord God, your word says that your, light, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so therefore, Lord, instruct us in your ways that we might heed your voice and respond. Make us fully aware to the voice of also the evil one who would suffer to distract us from your work and remind us today of your sacrifice that we might be faithful witnesses of your finished work. Lord, so that all others would ultimately be drawn to you and would believe by your word. We pray this, Lord God, in your precious and glorious name. Amen.